Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So I wish to congratulate Ajahn Amaro and all the monks, nuns, and lay people that have made this day possible. I'm very impressed. Everything seems so well appointed and smooth and pleasant. It's very uh, impressive to see so many people here and to see the development of monasteries here in the UK because when I came in 1977 there were only there was Wat Puta in Wimbledon and uh, after that uh, the other Thai monasteries assembled but Wat Puta then there was the London Buddhist Vihara, the Sri Lankan um, Vihara in, in uh, Chiswick. And I remember the night before Lung Po Cha and I came to England, I began to get cold feet and figure out how I could survive as a Buddhist monk keeping the Vinaya, the strict Vinaya that was taught at Wat Nong Pa Pong and I was, couldn't imagine, you know, living in London and, and where I didn't know anyone and uh, depending on alms. But today seemed to be an extraordinary example of alms giving that was never anticipated or expected back then. But it's because of your generosity and respect and faith in the Dhamma that the Buddhist teaching is made available, uh, widely available here in, in England, in the UK, in Europe, and all over the world in countries that before were never interested or knew anything about Buddhism. And I found in my, I'm almost 60 years as, as a Buddhist, and uh, even more than that if I count my layman's years, because I became interested in 1955, when I was in the Navy, and I started reading books about Zen Buddhism. And it was Zen Buddhism, the Japanese type of Buddhism that was 
translated into English at the time in a few books and it was very rare to get any books in English on Buddha Dhamma of any sort, whether whatever country or school was, was existed. But now on internet you can get all kinds of information on Tibetan, on Mahayana, on Zen, Theravada, on mysticism, and all kinds of information is available on the teaching of mindfulness and liberation through wisdom. So this is a very good time for us all because the, the teaching is so available and there's so much interest in it because the Buddha's teaching is very direct. The teaching he gave after his enlightenment, the Four Noble Truths, this teaching is very profound, even though it's quite simple. It, it's about practice and understanding the causes of suffering, because in this realm as a human be being, as a man or a woman, the, we all experience suffering of some sort or another. Just the aging process, the sicknesses we have to endure, and the inevitable loss of friends and parents and relatives, and our own demise in the future. So the Buddha pointed to the deathless reality, the Dhamma, and this is something that you can point, you can't teach Dhamma, you, you can only point to it. Like Dhamma, from my insight, has no language because it's silent and pure. And languages are all created by human beings trying to communicate with each other. So all languages have their limitations, whether it's English, Thai, Singhalese, or French, German, or any other language, because they're created by human beings who uh, create language to communicate about the world, about right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. Uh, that, and all these words that we use in our language are divisive because you, you, we see at this time how much division there is around what people think, what people say, uh, that people can say them in the finest language with the highest concepts. But so much of our life is dealing with just uh, the, the energies of our bodies, our hunger, our fears, our reaction to the problems of life. And so in terms of ideals, one can create ideals with words, like English language, can, we can create beautiful concepts of perfection. But perfection is ultimate reality, is Dhamma. Dhamma is perfect, because it wasn't created. It wasn't created by the Buddha or by any other being 
whether it's a, a super being or ordinary being. Dhamma is ultimate reality or absolute reality. And the Four Noble Truths is a direct pointing at Dhamma, at absolute reality. So it, it, the teaching that the Lord Buddha gave in his first sermon were, were merely pointing in the direction that one could see quite clearly, such as the first noble truth of suffering. <clears throat> so the first noble truth is there is suffering. It's to be understood. And of course in in Western terms, we think of suffering as something created by others. So we, 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 we tend to blame others for our unhappiness, our misery, our suffering, by playing the blame game, as they call it today. We blame others. It's the, the right or the left or the the atheists, or the Christians, or somebody else. So, they see the endless wars in, in uh, Gaza, Israel, and in, in Ukraine and Russia. These are created out of this divisiveness of language, identifying with one group and seeing anything that was different as the enemy or a threat. And then this world, when you, people ask, what, how do you deal with fear? Because fear is a kind of primal emotion we all experience. And ideally, you know, in my American conditioning, my generation was, men should be fearless, brave and fearless was the ideal. That's an ideal for men in, in my generation. So you're brought up with a feeling of, why am I frightened? If I were a real man, I wouldn't be frightened, I would be brave. And then the Hollywood movies of that time, of the 40s and 50s, were all about uh, brave heroes uh, that could conquer and were not frightened by anything. But fear, when you start looking at it, is is a, we live in a frightening world, the world that we have to experience. And just uh, living in in a country like England, for example, there's traffic, there's disease, there's there's all kinds of unknown factors that one could imagine might be uh, around the corner to harm us. There might be meteors from outer space. There's so much to be frightened of just when we identify with the, the bodies we have, because these human forms are very delicate. They're not, we're not supermen. We're not uh, like Buddha Rupas, the beautiful Rupa behind me, doesn't know fear because it doesn't feel. And it's made of bronze covered in gold, but all of us have to live our lives in these forms that get cold, get hungry, get tired, get old, get sick. 
we've been through a time with the COVID pandemic in which there was a lot of fear around contagion and death. And this is the world that we experience through this form. And the Buddha encouraged us to question, are we really what we believe in, what we think we are? So ask yourself, are you really the human body that you identify with? Is this your true nature? And this is a very important question to ask yourself. Because it's, you know, it's, a, it's this human body which you didn't choose. You were born and you didn't, you don't remember choosing to be born. You're born and then you, whether you're male or female form, human form, it's conscious. And then you are conditioned by your culture, by your language, by your parents, by your race, your nationality, how you see yourself in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. So in living in Thailand for so many years, in the forests in Thailand, you know, there's a lot to fear in the snakes and cobras and, and all kinds of insects, disease like malaria. And so you live in a, in a place where you're living in as a Buddhist monk. And I was living in Ubon most of the years in Thailand, where, which was at that time in 19... 67 was quite undeveloped. And so the, the life I lived in with Lung Pho Chai and Wat, Wat Pa Pong was very basic. And fear, of course, was experienced in the night, in dark nights, and then there's, there's all kinds of unknown factors, and I would explore fear and one year I lived in a, in Amnachalern at Tam Sang Pet, a branch monastery, where I lived on a platform built over a, a, in, a in a kind of a cave where they, all the villagers told me a python lived in the cave. And this platform was, was built over this cave that the python lived on. And so every night I'd contemplate, what if the python comes and swallows me? And um, I never, in the year or so that I lived on this platform, I never saw the python, but I imagined it. So the imagination could create fear, just imagining the, the danger of being, because we had this image of being swallowed whole by this huge snake. And then I remember sitting out on this platform on a dark night with no moon, and I saw an, uh, an owl staring at me, and it was eerie to see this kind of predatory bird looking, staring right at me. And so I started deliberately imagining ghosts and, and anything that was, had a frightening form. 
And then I noticed that I had the, there was no roof to this platform, so I just had an umbrella and a mosquito net around the umbrella. So I get frightened sitting out in the dark, and then I'd go in this, under this umbrella and they light a candle with a mosquito net around me and suddenly I felt very safe. Not that the mosquito net could have prevented the python or any other predatory being, a tiger or whatever. So just contemplating fear alone as a human primal experience. What is it that can be aware of fear is not frightened? So the Buddha emphasized mindfulness or sati sampatanya, mindfulness and a comprehension in a wide way, not just understanding, trying to analyze yourself as a personality that's frightened and trying to get rid of it, but by actually witnessing fear, observing it, in which to observe fear you have to let go of it and be the witness to the emotion, the sense of fear is like this. So this is understanding suffering, because fear is a form of suffering. That applies to like anger or hatred, aversion. In the Western world we're very much keen on trying to perfect ourselves as personalities, trying to uh, get rid of our neuroses and personal emotional problems because we believe that there's something wrong with us. If I have emotional fears or emotional problems or have too vivid an imagination, I take it, I would take it very personally, like there's something wrong with me. I've got to go to a psychotherapist to, to kind of try to understand why I'm so frightened or angry. Where with the Buddhist teaching, anger is a part of survival. You know, whether you like it or not, it's a survival mechanism. There's a lot to be angry about in the, in the realm of samsara or the worldly realm, the material realm. We think in terms of ideals of how things should be, where everybody's working together and we all agree on the same thing and we don't fight, we just learn to live with each other with loving kindness and forgiveness. And that's uh, the kind of ideal, beautiful ideal. But the actual experience of life is being irritated, frustrated, annoyed, resentful, angry about all kinds of things, unfair experiences, uh, blame, and, and the, the kind of problems of life that we all have to go through as we grow up and get old. So, rather than trying to get rid of anger, Anung Pacha is always pointing to, to be the observer of anger, the Puto. He used this, this mantra, which is the Buddha's name, Puto, as the knower 
anger is like this. And as you begin to change your attitude towards anger or fear, jealousy, these kind of human emotions that we experience, you begin to see them for what they really are, as all conditions are impermanent and not self. You're not what you think, you're not the anger you might be feeling or the fear, fears that you have or the, the greed or lust or whatever experiences you have as an individual. Instead of identifying yourself with these conditions, you observe them as the Buddha does the Dhamma. So there's Bhutto Dhammo Sankho or as I began this, this reflection on Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasami, taking refuge in awareness and in the Dhamma, which is the awareness of the way things are, all conditions are impermanent. And you begin to, if you trust in this and practice it, this is real meditation or bhavana, in which you begin to free yourself from a lot of the emotional fears and doubts and worries that human beings create in their minds through the experiences we have through this form. This form, the human form, male or female, is a sensitive form. It's, you know, we have eyes, ears, nose, we smell things, we, we feel hot or cold, we feel hungry. We feel tired, we, we feel sexual desire, we feel all kinds of, of energies affecting us through this form that we tend to see in terms of a very personal way. And especially in the West, the Western world, we take ourselves very, everything is very personal. And so the Buddhist teaching is a teaching pointing to the impersonality, that we're not really this person, this form. But our refuge really is in Dhamma, the absolute perfect reality that can witness, that Puto or this awareness, mindfulness can witness the experiences we have in daily life. So this is, this is a timeless teaching because suffering isn't about suffering of Gautama the Buddha in ancient India. It's about human suffering, your suffering, my suffering. Wherever, whatever time, whatever country, whatever nationality you are, you, you know, suffering is pretty much the same thing. So we call this enlightenment when we see this for ourselves, see the impermanence of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, what we feel. Rather than getting angry when, we, when our sight fails, when our hearing fails, when we get sick, we have fevers, we have a lot to fear from who knows what kind of thing is going to happen in the future? There's so many predictions now 
on the media, the mass media, about all kinds of uh, dismal, depressing predictions about the future. And so the future, in terms of now, is imagined. Tomorrow you have to imagine now. So tomorrow, at this moment, is an image we have of something like for for the monks here. It's the uh, Padimokha recitation tomorrow. But what is that in the reality of this moment? It's an ima image, isn't it? It's imagination. The Padimokha tomorrow is a, is what we imagine. So is there really a future? You know, and the past, when we think of the katina has been accomplished, and that's now the past, the offering by the, the royal embassy and so forth, that's a memory that we have now. So our past is a memory. The future is the unknown, it's imagined, and experience is always here and now. And this is a reflection of the way it really is. Experience is always now. And you can imagine experience in the future. You can uh, think, uh, you know, about getting uh, COVID in the future or getting dementia or being left alone somewhere all by yourself. Uh, you know, uh, old age is a, can be rather threatening image in the mind of young people. But old age, for myself, is like this. Old age is like the body is old. So it's, it's, that's what it's doing, what it's supposed to do. It was born 89 years ago, and this is what happens in 89 years to, to this body. Am I really this body? Am I really 89? According to convention, yes. The conventional reality. But paramatta satcha, or ultimate reality, dhamma, that this is not self. The body is a condition, a sankhara, that begins and ends, lives its span, and then dies. And what happens when the body dies? We all wonder what happens when, when we die. And that's imagination, isn't it? Whatever you believe in, if there's nothing, you, it's just oblivion forever, or it's hell or heaven, or rebirth, reincarnation. At this moment, that is images, because we're experiencing life, the energy of life through a form is like this. And so death, you can't imagine it. You have images, you are told that you'll be reincarnated and, um, and then you'll be saved or you'll be sent to eternal punishment or you'll just end up in oblivion, nothing. But whatever the word is, whether it's oblivion, heaven, hell, Brahma realm, deva realm, or human realm, or animal realm, 
right now for all of us, it's an image we create in the present. That's experience. You experience these images that you create and you tend to believe in them. Where in Dhamma, there's nothing to believe in because it's insight knowledge, jnana dasana, which is insight into the reality of ultimate reality, which we call, use the word Dhamma. So you learn from the experience of life, from from loss of friends, we all experience the, the loss of our parents, friends, relatives, our pets, all that we love uh, has to be separated from us. And eventually, and that when we think of it, I remember in uh, Thailand, we'd reflect every, every evening, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And I, I remember first realizing what that said, because it was in Thai in the beginning, before I understood the language. And uh, when I understood it, translated it into English, oh, that's very depressing. Because to my conditioning, my Western conditioning, uh, I hope to, that all that in my beloved and pleasing I will, I can keep forever. Even though you know that that's not really possible in a practical way, but what you love and it pleases you, whether it's your mother, father, husband, wife, children, dog or cat, love, this kind of bond one forms with other beings, it can be broken by death. And that is imagined. When it really happens, then it is, you feel the sense of loss, of separation from the love, just like this. And this way you can deal with grief and sadness as you experience life. You open to life as it happens to you in whatever shape or form it, it does. So here at Amravati, I named it when we first came to this place, it was a school previously. And uh, at the time in 1984, we moved here. And in 1984 in Britain, there was a lot of pessimism. There was these strong peace movements and there was a fear of a third world war. And the Americans were arming Britain with cruise missiles and there were a lot of peace movements and, and uh, fear that, that there's going to be a war between the United States and Soviet Union and Britain would be in the middle of it, it would be the battleground for it. And it was affecting like teenagers, school children, because they would feel there's nothing left for us in the future, nuclear war between the United States and Soviet Union. And that's very depressing to think of, it, of that happening. And that's imagination. Imagination can, can do that. 
you can become totally upset just by imagining the Third World War. So Amravati means a deathless realm. And we talk about the deathless, like Ajahn Amaro, his very name means the deathless. Amaro. And so Amaravati is a, a kind of symbol for that, for ultimate reality, a realm of understanding, wisdom. So when everything, you let go of everything, you don't get rid of life, you don't commit suicide or blind yourself or do anything to harm yourself, but you let go, you begin to see you have the nature to release this, this condition, your attachment to these conditions, to these beliefs. That you're, you're free to let go of life and know things as they are, that the future is unknown, is something you imagine, the past is a memory. And, and what substance has a memory for any of us? It can affect us, like remember unfortunate things of the past and we feel angry or uh, remorseful or whatever about things we might have done or experienced in the past. With the, with the memory of something unfortunate that we experience. But in the present moment where we are, the energy itself, the divine energy of awareness, then we, we begin to see the, the, that there's nothing worth hanging on to. Memories come and go like clouds in the sky. The future uh, is unknown. And if we open to, to life in the present and relax and, and free ourselves from these habitual blinding attachments to phenomena, we begin to experience nirvana, uh, freedom from desire, freedom from suffering. So this is the, the Four Noble Truth is pointing at this. The Third Noble Truth is about Niroda, or the end of suffering. And so, I remember listening to Rajan Chah's talks years ago at Wat Bapong, and he's always pointing to the end of suffering. And uh, and so, and of course, I, the first year uh, I was with him, I didn't know the language, the custom. I, I didn't know very hardly anything about Thailand. And uh, I did have a lot of trust in Ajahn Chah as a person. He's a very inspiring monk. And in Buddha's teaching, but also, you, as many of you are aware, how frustrating it is to be in a situation where you don't understand the language and uh, where you can imagine all kinds of things being said, where your imagination can really bind you to all kinds of paranoia and fear and resentment that you imagine. And Lumpachar was always encouraging me to look at my mind with this mantra puto, 
And so today people ask me, they say, you must have really suffered that first year uh, being the first Western monk with Lung Pa Cha in Thailand at that time and having to learn another language and learn all the Vinaya rules and, and uh, all the, the kind of monastic form, the, the, the Thai cultural conditions and so forth. Everything was new and different and strange to me. But in terms of memory, to this moment, I don't remember suffering. I just feel incredible gratitude because Lumpur Cha was, wasn't trying to convert me to being a Buddhist, but he was getting me to use the experience that I was having to, to, with wisdom to see the impermanence of my emotional states, my imagination, my reactions, my fears, my suspicions. And so in that first year, I did learn a lot just through the wisdom that Lung Pa Cha kept encouraging in me to, to endure through these experiences as a newly ordained Buddhist monk, adjusting to a different culture, a different way of life, something totally different than what I was used to. And so I only think of the past, that first year with Ajahn Chah, uh, with gratitude, because even though on one level, rationally I know I suffered, I don't really remember it in any way. I can remember the first year and what arises in my mind is, is gratitude, because I thought it was a really wonderful way to live as I was living life there at Wat Pa Pong in 1967. And it was, uh, you know, I was uh, impressed by the generosity of the people, the local villagers, the townspeople in Warin or Uwan. And uh, because as a, as a foreigner, you, you know, you don't, you, you don't know what to expect. When I first went to Thailand, to a, I wanted to find a meditation teacher. I didn't know whether they would accept a, a foreigner into the monastery. I knew nothing about Thai Buddhism. So I was always impressed by the, as soon as I showed an interest in Buddhism, Thai people tend to really encourage that. I taught English in Bangkok for six months before I ordained and and every Thai I knew that when they found out I was interested in Buddhism would encourage me. So I went to various teachers that were famous and well known at that time in Bangkok. And Lumpa Cha was not known yet in Bangkok because I never heard his name mentioned. But I found him all by circumstances that I think are like destiny, you might describe as fate or destiny, because uh, even though I met very fine teachers, 
and I was uh, impressed with them. I never felt that, that kind of magnetism that Bhumpa Cha had. Now, what is that? You know, see, he couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Thai or Isan dialect. And yet there was a sudden kind of recognition of, of the aim in life is to be free, free from the delusions and fears and desires that we have to experience through these forms. So these forms, these bodies are desire forms. Their very nature is created through desire. And so desire is a condition. It's not ultimate reality. And so in the second noble truth, one can witness to desire. So Lung Pa Chao was always encouraging me to observe my desires. And uh, that's the first time, is through this Theravada approach, through the Four Noble Truths, that I had, had an expansive view of desire. Because in America, as I was brought up as a Christian, desire was something bad. It meant something usually around sexual desire or greed. And uh, so if somebody said, uh, that person has a lot of desires, uh, that would be an insult. But in Buddhism, desire is to be understood, to be recognized. And what is it that can recognize desire is conscious awareness. Desire comes and goes, it's not permanent. It's not per even personal. It's the nature of this realm that we experience through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So desire can be understood not as something good or bad, but as something that is what we call sankhara or a phenomena, phenomena that arises and ceases. And one begins to witness desire, with, and this is with wisdom, seeing its true nature is impermanent and not self. So the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, which is based on right understanding. So right understanding is the insight you get through understanding suffering, through letting go of desire. And letting go of desire doesn't mean you get rid of it. You don't kind of destroy desire, but you let go of it. You begin to see you're not a desire that arises. But you're the witness to it, whether it's desire to, for sensual pleasures or desire for becoming something that you imagine or desire for getting rid of all your faults and problems. So these three kinds of desires lead to, through let, lead to the insight of letting go, which is not destructive. It's just learning to relax and trust in being the witness to experience in this form. So then we begin to, the words like Amaravati began to, rather than just kind of imagine states of deathless reality, which you can't really imagine 
what the deathless realm is like. You know, we in the West we have immortal gods, and uh, but the but gods are, tend to always have forms in the West. So, like in Christianity, God is usually imagined as a kind of patriarchal figure, an older male figure that passes judgment on us. But I found in direct experience that Dhamma doesn't pass judgment. If you take refuge in Dhamma, it's not, it has no language to judge, but it's the ability to observe the tendency to make judgments about yourself or others. And being educated, I also developed a very critical mind, which has developed this sense of right and wrong and justice and fairness and how things should be. And I, I love ideals, uh, you know, of a complete fairness and justice and freedom for all and equality, democracy. All these ideals are very much, uh, you know, beautiful ideals. But ideals are made up things, they're empty phenomena. This realm that we're experiencing through this form is, can never be ideal because it's about being born, growing up, getting old and dying. It's about experience through a sensitive form that the Buddha pointed to as a way to witness and understand and realize the deathless. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon. Mm -hmm.